You know, in my ignorance, as someone who knows little to well nothing about singing and songs, I've always thought that animals oratorio had to ask me for that word. The Messiah has been produced, has been and always will be, one of the greatest pieces of worship music ever produced. I have been sure that the Messiah is the song we will all be singing in heaven. I'm wrong. It's going to be the song of Moses. It's the song of Moses. It's, it's a song that has been recalled all through scriptures, through the Psalms, through Habakkuk, through Isaiah. It was sung by God's people when they returned from their captivity in Babylon. Tradition has it that it was sung in the temple in sections, one for each Sabbath, at the close of the Sabbath morning service. But most pointedly, it is a song we will all sing standing by the shores of that final sea. As Revelation tells us, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and of the Lamb. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang. Of course they sang. It wasn't just a victory. They weren't just saved. They were redeemed. This is the song of a redeemed. This is the song of the Redeemer. It is a song about the victory. And it is the victory of our risen Christ. This redemption was born in the blood of an eternal covenant. And this redemption, this redemption here in Exodus was accomplished on the cross. Woven throughout these verses is the unchangeable character of his purpose. As Hebrews would say, that sure and steadfast hope, that anchor of our souls. For from the, line, the first line of glorious triumph to the final verse of forever and ever from the shores of this sea to the shores of that final sea, it will be sung because it is a song of the redeemed. It will be sung because it's the song of the gospel. Of course the mountains sing. Of course the people break out in adoration. That's, that's what happens in the gospel. And so, look, look here with me in verse 1. In verse 1, the gospel sings of redemption accomplished. So I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider has thrown into the sea. Slavery perished. Death was swallowed up. In verse 2, the gospel sings of salvation embraced. 
The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. What they could not do for themselves, God did. In weakness, they were made strong. In bondage, they were made free. And their song of mourning, that mourning they heard in Egypt, was turned into laughter and dancing and singing. God did it. God did it for them. And in their silence, remember that silence from chapter 14? In their silence, he became their salvation. And then, in over half this song, in verses 3 through 12, the gospel sings of the warrior who overcomes. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And for the next nine verses, the floods cover up, the waters pile up, the deep congeals, the sea covers, the earth swallows up. You know, just as an aside, we were driving down to North Carolina last weekend. There was a big billboard on Highway 77. It was the sign of this big Christian fish. And the words said, said I still love you. I really do. I wonder why we never see a sign like that that says, Jesus is a man of war. He really is. Here, here in this song, half the adoration is because he is a man of war.
No more sinning. That is what we sing. That's our worship. The Lord is a man of war. And as if to prove the point that love and warfare go together, in the very next verse, take a look at it. In verse 13, the gospel sings a covenant. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Over and over again, he defines his heart towards us, his covenant love, with words of steadfast love, with words of grace. It's as if he knows that the people who were orphans can never be told enough that they're loved. It is here, in the steadfast love, that our faith finds its home. It is here, in the steadfast love, that faith makes sense to our souls. Steadfast love speaks of belonging and purpose and meaning. It reveals that this journey of faith is not born at the miraculous events at the plague, at the sea. He wants us to know that our journey is born in his heart. In that greater story. In that sacred romance. And our theology becomes doxology. Verses 14 through 18, the gospel sings of a way prepared. The people have heard and trembled, they have melted away, dread has fallen upon them until your people pass by. Jesus would say, well, sort of say, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this way of faith, in this journey, you will have tribulation. You will have enemies. Take heart. I have overcome your enemies. In verse 17, the gospel sings of perseverance. You will bring them in and plant them in your own mountain. The sanctuary which your hands have established. This, this is our hope. This is what gives our lives shape and meaning. It is the cry of the church triumphant. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And in verse 18, the gospel. 
we will speak a little bit of Messiah. And he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. You know, when Handel, when Handel's work is sung here on earth, the audience stands. I can only imagine this tradition starting here by the sea. As this song came to an end and these words rang out, can't you just see this vast, unwashed number of people rising to their feet? They couldn't help it. They stood as one. They stood as millions of people rising up with that great cloud of witnesses standing and singing and worshiping and crying, He shall reign forever and ever.
for you. And you are here for me. I, I think it's saying that I need you to sing the gospel to me. And I need to sing the gospel to you. That's our kingdom life. And when we come together to worship here, we sing. We sing not because the right songs are played, not because the best songs are picked, not because we like the style or content. It's not even because of the competency of those who provide the music. We sing because to sing is worship. And worship is not something that is given to us. It's not something that's provided for us when we walk through those doors. We bring our worship. And how we worship here in this place comes from our hearts. No, more to the point. It comes from where our hearts dwell. Out of the heart, the mouth sings. Sometimes our singing can be, well, like we don't see Jesus. Sometimes our singing can be like our hearts don't dwell with him. If you feel that that's you, we've all been there. If you feel like that's you today, then let the Lord speak to you this morning. Again, through the words of Moses, only take care and keep your soul diligent, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. Unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. The Lord loves our worship, and the character of our worship comes from where our hearts swell. May it be said of us today that our hearts swell in the gospel. And as we prepare for the second hand, it's also true. The Lord loves our faith. And the character of our faith comes from where our hearts dwell. Then Moses and the people of Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. testify that the greatest need of man is salvation. 
And the second, like unto it, is to live out of that salvation. To the end, that the greatest need of man is faith. And the second greatest need of man is to live out of that faith. Like the Israelites, we are really good at that first part, that faith and salvation, right, Jed? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's just the second part. Just like the Israelites. It's the second part we have trouble with. You know, that to live by faith. of the Old Testament seems to be a commentary on this. It seems to be a commentary on the faith or faithlessness of the people of Israel. And it, it sometimes looks like a train wreck. Come, come to the men's Bible study. We're in 2 Samuel. Have you ever studied 2 Samuel? It's, it's, it's a soap opera about a train wreck. <laughs> so what does God mean to live by faith? Well, rather than answering that directly, I would like to answer it in the sense of what is the result? of living by faith. And for that answer, I think we can paraphrase our Westminster standards. The chief result of living by faith is that God is glorified and we enjoy Him. God is glorified when His people live by faith. Craig Bartholomew wrote, For the people of Israel, the whole experience from here on out, including worship, family life, law, politics, economics, and recreation, is to reflect God's character and God's original creational intention for human life. Israel's life under God is to testify to the living presence of God with his people. God would say it this way. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. The only way salvation comes is when God works. Only divine power can create and recreate. Only divine power can rescue. And the only way, and I'm going to say this, because this is what I see in Scripture. The only way that God's divine power works through us is 
For by faith, it is now no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives through me. And it as, as Christ lives through me, that the mountains are moved, that the lame walk, that the blind see. It is only as Christ lives through me that God's salvation reaches the ends of the earth. The world is not crying out. Tell us what you know. The world is crying out. Show us Jesus. So why is it was a journey of faith into faith. By God's design, it was a wilderness journey of testing and revealing. There, I tested you, said God. I tested you to see what was in your heart. In scriptures, we always see a test because it asks us, when we see a test, we see it because it is God asking us to trust His heart. Pharaoh had been conquered, and now the greatest battle was to be the battle of their hearts, the battle of belief and unbelief. And yes, it is a war. Ironically, as from the garden, it was a war of independence, of autonomy, a war of self-rule. It is the war of life that lifts its face to God and says in the millions of expressions of our lives, I am God. The gospel, as Colossians teaches us, is that in everything, in everything, Christ is preeminent. In everything, Christ is sufficient. The war in our hearts, the war of our hearts says, no, you're not. I am. This wilderness experience, this freedom march to the place of his sanctuary was meant to be towards the heart of God. For many, it would be a march to independence. A march with their own hearts. So in verse 22, they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was in Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Faith finds its home in trust. So he led them to a place where he asked them to trust him. To trust him. Three days in the Sinai wilderness can be brutal. No, three hours in the Sinai can be brutal. If there was any testing by fire, as we read by Peter earlier, it's right here. Is our God preeminent and sufficient? Here, in this brutal place, can God be present and loving when there is no evidence? We know that brutal place, don't we? As I look out for what? 
200 people sitting here, then, then we know there are 200 brutal places. There are 200 marriages sitting here. Physical hurt, the emotional pain, the dark places of doubt, the thirst, it's all here. We walk through that sea, and yet we find ourselves and our loved ones suffering inexplicably suffering. And that song of Moses seems like an eternity now. Family, I've been privileged as a fellow sojourner to see the wondrous testimonies of faith that come from you all. As I look out, I see beautiful people. People that are being transformed with ever-increasing splendor into the likeness of Jesus. Into his image, by faith. As I get to hear your song, I know a little bit now why God loves your faith. But with great sadness, it can also be said that many in the church of God, some from even among us, sing the old song. That song that says, God is not working for me. God, you're not worth it. That's what God saw in Israel. In Psalm 78, he described your journey like this. They forgot. They sinned. They rebelled. They provoked. They did not trust. In spite of all my wonders, they did not believe. Praise God. The story, our message doesn't end here. And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Now, I'm going to translate the word log as tree. In Hebrew, it's not just that the two words come from the same root. In Hebrew, they are the same word. I'm not sure why translators use the word lot. Perhaps they thought Moses couldn't throw a tree into the water. Or maybe there's a category. Anyway, what is beyond dispute is that in their thirst of unbelief, they needed God's provision. And what is also beyond dispute is that the provision of God has always been and will forever be through a tree. Actually, through the one who humbled the tree. In life, in death, and yes, even in this wilderness, there is no other provision than Jesus. Yes, it is also true that mediators are needed when relationships are broken. And yes, Moses was their mediator. And yes, he was a type and shadow of the mediator. That is why I think the word is really true. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. They needed a tree. God provided there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all the statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you. I will put none of the diseases on you, 
that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Faith finds its home in trust. And trust finds its home in love. I find that the greatest challenge in this journey is, well, my love for him. It's not just a struggle with the longings of the idols of Egypt. It's not just a struggle with that place of no evidence. It's not just a struggle with the small God I have made, that God who works for me. It is the struggle born of that ancient song. It is the struggle of self-love. The love we express through independence, through self-rule. What we find through this testing and through these statutes is that to be a people of freedom is to lay at his feet our self-rule. To be a people of God is to say that you are Lord and you are not my Lord. It is to say that your heart is my heart. It is to say that at the waters of the sea, I die. And my created life is in Christ. He lives in me. To be a people of God is to trust Him. And at, that, at the center of that trust is to love Him. So God made for them statues so that as His people, their self-love would die into heaven for Him. Their self-rule would be replaced by His Lordship and so that in the end, they would trade their glory for His glory. Oh, how love I thy law. Jesus would describe this scene perfectly. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me is loved by my Father. God made for them statues to test them, to see where their hearts dwell, to see if they love them. One of the most tender moments in Scripture is when, when Jesus approached Peter, who was walking in his own wilderness. And he said, Do you love me? We need to know the answer. And here, in this passage, they needed to know the answer. Because if through these tests and statutes, they proclaimed with their hearts that they were just like the Egyptians, then the diseases and curses that he put on the Egyptians, he would put on them. Uh, their eyes had seen their redemption, and their eyes had also seen the diseases and the curses. God, have mercy. 
towards people today, so many times indifferent to his voice, ignoring his word, choosing to reject his lordship, knowing that our hearts so often do not love him. We hear these words, and we can only say, Lord, have mercy on us. And this, this is a beautiful part. And so, he gives us today to turn our heads. And we find mercy. We see grace upon grace. In these elements, we once again hear the gospel. Faith always drives us to our knees. And as we look, we repent. And we repent and worship, and our hearts bow down and lift our voices to sing. With all the people here in this scripture, we sing, The Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord has become my salvation. For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the victory is this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. The Lord is our Lord. And He is our King. In the end, verse 27, then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that place of bitter waters, that place of doubt. He leads me in green pastures beside the still waters. He restores my soul. This is the unchangeable character of his heart. It is that a people who come to Jesus will find rest for their souls in those 12 springs and in those 70 palms once again. He revealed his heart. He revealed his covenant heart to them. As they stumble into that oasis, that place of abundance and rest, they recalled to mind. They recalled to mind what had been passed down for 400 years. They recalled to mind the stories of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and of the and they recalled to mind the stories of that trek into Egypt, that trek of Jacob and all his household, all 70 of them. There, at Elim, in the trees and in the springs, the Redeemer reminded his people once 
you had not received mercy. But now you receive mercy. And Aline, he calls out to the orphan and he says, My daughter and my son, today, in all your journey of faith, and for the glory of his name, may your hearts rest there. May your hearts dwell 